Hi, Mosaic. Uh, it's me, Jeff Miller. Uh, man, how I'm missing every one of you. How I long to be with you guys, uh, to sit and worship with you, to hug you, uh, to talk to you. I don't know about you, but for me and my family, this has been a pretty uniquely difficult season that we're walking through. And I know that's true of a lot of us um, here. Um, I pray that it be over soon, uh, that we can be together in person, but even if it doesn't, until we can be together and uh, just pray that we can continue to strengthen and encourage and be there for each other in whatever ways uh, that we can uh, welcome into uh, this week uh, worshiping together um, over video again. Today we're continuing our walk through Paul's letter uh, to, the, to the church at Rome. Um, after, I think, a few weeks off uh, from doing that, we've been walking backwards uh, through the letter to the church at Rome. Uh, so we get a clear view of where Paul was going with it. Uh, and what we've discovered as we've walked through uh, this letter to the church at Rome is this theme of what we're calling Christoformity. That is, our being transformed by the renewing of our minds into the mind of Jesus Christ. In other words, uh, when we embrace the kingdom of God, we find ourselves called to begin approaching and engaging the world in a way that's modeled on how Jesus approached and engaged with the world. Paul addressed a set of churches in the city of Rome that found themselves divided and straying from an understanding of what it means to be a part of Jesus' kingdom. So having seen where Paul's going, today we're circling all the way back to the start of Paul's letter. And I want to engage a little bit with the way that Paul starts his letter and how he begins this journey on the theme of Christiformity. Now, as a lot of you know, um, I work at the Lincoln Correctional Center. I oversee religious accommodation there. We don't use the word chaplain, uh, but that's the word that people know for what I do. So I oversee everything that has to do with the chapel. And uh, part of what I do, we have an inmate uh, a member of our inmate population uh, who, uh, who works at the chapel. That's where he's assigned uh, for his job. He does the cleaning of the chapel, uh, which is especially important uh, right now. We need to keep everything kind of bleached and sanitized um, all the time. We've just resumed uh, doing religious services um, in Nebraska prisons. Um, so we have to make sure that everything is really well bleached and sanitized after each event. Uh, so my worker right now is keeping very busy doing that. He also helps us with a lot of our uh, simple clerical work. Um, he helps maintain our religious library uh, down there. I depend on my uh, inmate worker to do a lot of different things 
uh, for me in the chapel. Uh, not too long ago, uh, the guy who did that job for me for a number of years, uh, a guy by the name of Bill, um, he got moved up um, in the system. Uh, he's at work release now, uh, which was great for him, but highly inconvenient for me because he was such a great worker. Uh, he was very difficult uh, to replace. It was really all I could do not to go to his parole hearing and say really bad things about him so that he could keep working for me um, in the chapel. But I decided not to do that. Decided not to sabotage uh, his parole plans. Uh, um, we ended up having to replace him in the chapel. Now the easy part about, find, uh, about filling that position was finding interested candidates uh, for the job. Everyone wants to work in the chapel. I must have had at least 30 credible applications uh, for the job. I mean, the chapel is quiet. Um, it's a pleasant place to work. It's a way to get off of the housing unit, get away uh, from the rest of the inmate population. Um, you know, it's a way of getting away from the pressures and anxieties uh, that just kind of go f with living in prison. The pay is relatively good um, in the chapel, and I mean, you have the best boss um, in the place, right? Uh, so who wouldn't want to work um, there in the chapel? But one of the hard parts about filling the position of my inmate worker um, in the chapel is that not everybody is qualified uh, to work in there. We're in a part of the facility that if you've committed um, certain crimes, uh, you know, the most serious crimes, uh, you're not allowed uh, to work down there. So if you've committed murder, assault with a deadly weapon, sexual assault, I can't hire you um, down there. That's the administration's rule that's in policy. The administration will just send it straight back to me uh, if I try to hire somebody who's committed one of those crimes. So it took me a while to hire a guy, but I finally did, uh, a guy by the name of Philip, and I was really happy to have him working for me. I was having breakfast uh, with my wife and my parents uh, one day on a visit uh, to St. Louis, uh, where I come from, um, and I was explaining the whole situation to them, and I was celebrating that I had finally found someone who could do the job. Finally, I found my guy. I said, he's easy to get along with. He's a proven worker. Um, I think he's going to do just great. And either Betsy or one of my parents said, that's great. What's he in prison for? And I responded, oh, that's the best part. Just strangulation. And when the three of them looked back at me with such confusion, I realized just how much working in prison uh, for so many years has changed the way I think. Just strangulation. That may be a bad sign uh, of, of the way that the ecosystem I'm kind of working and living in these days has changed and altered the way that I think. That happens, doesn't it? Our, our cultural ecosystem around us changes the way that we think and the way that we perceive the world and what's important and what's good and what's evil and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. It certainly happened to the church in Rome in the days before Paul's letter. In Rome, status and power meant everything. If you had the stature and the position to exercise power and privilege 
over others. There was really no moral stigma about lording that power and privilege over others for whatever you wanted out of them. Particularly for the Gentiles, the strong, as Paul has referred to them in later chapters that we've seen, who were part of the church in Rome, that was the cultural and moral ocean that they were swimming in. And we see that in the things that Paul has addressed with them. They're using their power and privilege in ways that are causing division and perpetuating hierarchies that don't have a place in a kingdom defined by Christiformity. And no less with the Jewish uh, population in the Roman church, who Paul refers to as the weak. They emerged from a cultural ecosystem that was just rife uh, with, uh, with moral judgment and condemnation um, and an approach to morality and judgment that was just equally out of step uh, with Christiformity. And we can see that over, you know, we can see that through the issues that Paul addresses with that half of the community as well. And all of this is stuff that Kurt has talked about um, in an extended way over the past several weeks of our series. I'm sure that it wouldn't take too much creative thinking for us to come up with a few ways that the cultural ecosystem that we're swimming in has affected the way that the church and even we ourselves has drawn us away uh, from a vision and an imagination of Christiformity. That ability to approach and engage the world with the compassion and the peacemaking and the prophetic voice and the vision for justice of Jesus Christ. And so today what I want to dive into a little bit, uh, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Romans and I want us to think about Paul sitting down at his kitchen table or his desk or his workbench to start this letter and address some of these dark problems of power and privilege existing in the Church of Rome. How does he approach stepping in to those conflicts? We're going to look together at Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged 
by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be aware, unaware, brothers, that I have intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And I think what stands out tremendously to me as I encounter Paul's words of greeting uh, to the church at Rome is he, he's writing with some pretty dark stuff, some pretty dark conflict that he's going to get to, some pretty profound misunderstanding of the gospel and conflict and tension that he's going to be addressing. And it strikes me the posture that he's adopting as he walks into this situation uh, with the Church of Rome. What are some of the words and phrases that stick out in Paul's language? Grace and peace to you. I thank God for you. To you who are dearly loved by God, I long to be with you. I'm eager for God to send me uh, to be with you and among you. That's pretty powerful. To me, the posture with which we walk into uh, these situations of injustice and power imbalance and hierarchy, that posture that we walk into these situations with can be just everything. So I have a lot of different jobs that I do in the prison, a lot of different duties that I'm called upon to perform, some of which I like, some of which I really don't like too much. And I think that the duty that I have that I'm least enthusiastic about is probably that I'm called upon when the prison gets a call saying that the that a member of our inmate population has an immediate family member who's in the hospital sick or who has passed away, I'm the one that gets to deliver that message. And I don't much enjoy doing that job, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, you know, nobody, you know, like likes calling a multi-murderer into their office and saying that grandma just passed away. Uh, but I actually, believe it or not, uh, what I dislike even more about that job is that uh, before I can deliver that news uh, to the inmate, um, I have to confirm that news, which can be difficult to do. We get a call uh, from an inmate's brother saying, mom passed away. I've got to call the hospital or the morgue or the funeral home um, and try to get confirmation that that death has taken place because a lot of the people in our prison have people who don't like them, um, who might want to hurt them psychologically in some way. So, you know, there's always the chance that somebody might call saying, hey, tell them that their mom is dead or their sister is dead or their kid is dead. Um, so we need to find out for sure that, that information is true. And sometimes 
as you can imagine, hospitals or morgues or funeral homes aren't terribly forthcoming um, with that information. They want to make sure to guard the privacy of the deceased. So it can be pretty difficult. Well, one day I got a call uh, from the sister of one of our inmates, a gentleman named Lionel. And uh, Lionel's sister said, uh, Lionel and I have another sister who just passed away a few minutes ago. Uh, please let him know. So I found out from her which hospital um, the sister um, had passed away in, and I gave them a call. Um, and I actually got connected with the ICU unit, um, or the ICU, I should say, um, at the hospital. And asked them, can you confirm uh, that this individual has passed away? And the nurse that I spoke to said, nope, they're still alive. Um, they have not passed away um, yeah, that's the first time that's ever happened where I tried to confirm a death and actually found out, nope, that's misinformation. That individual is still alive. So that kind of left me in a place where I wasn't really sure what to do because um, I didn't want to, you know, just kind of leave it there and tell Lionel nothing. Um, so I called him into my office um, and it was a very, very awkward um, conversation. Um, before I kind of pass on to him. So we got a call um, saying that your sister has passed away, but we do have some conflicting information. It sounds like she may actually still be alive. Um, the reason I bring all this up, the reason I talk about it is I've learned that what's so important in these conversations and with so many, just like most of the conversations that we have and the conflicts and the tense moments, the way that we approach those moments has the power to change the entire outcome of the interaction. We know this uh, to be true. We know that it matters how we approach moments um, like this. And so I want to encourage us, you know, as we think about the way that Paul approached these conflicts in the Church of Rome, he led with this extension of grace and peace. He was going to talk about some deep and dark problems and divisions and disunities that the Church of Rome uh, was dealing with. But he's not coming in swinging. He's not coming in aggressively. He's coming in with a message of overall, what I want to extend to you is the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. And that's part of what it is to be a part of the kingdom of God. That is, we approach tensions and conflicts and injustices in the world around us. We approach them with a posture of receiving and extending the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're anything like me, I can usually muster up a posture of grace and peace and gentleness and compassion, whatever might be called for, if and only if things are going more or less according to plan. And guys, what in the world over the last five months has gone according to plan? I mean, I know that I didn't plan for any of this. We didn't plan on a quarantine. My family 
didn't plan uh, to have our kids home from school um, a few months early um, this year. Um, as a directional team, we sure didn't plan on not being able to gather um, in our full group uh, to be together for worship for going on four months uh, now. None of this, none of our lives have gone according to plan. Uh, for a long time, those of us uh, like me who are privileged enough uh, that we can usually deceive ourselves into thinking we live in a society that's basically just and equitable for everybody. We never planned on being thrown into cognitive dissonance uh, over the structural inequalities that surround us. All of this comes as an intense interruption to how we would like things to go. And I'm confident that Paul uh, didn't plan on seeing his brothers and sisters in Rome fall so hard into these tensions and grappling over power and privilege the way that he, the way that he found had happened among the church in Rome. I would imagine um, that word of that problem came as an intense interruption to him as well. In our Western American culture, Another thing that's very much a part of our cultural ecosystem is our conviction that the plan is good and interruption is bad. And now we're stuck with a need to engage with these incredible disruptions and interruptions, tensions, conflicts, along with whatever others uh, you may be dealing with in our life. And Jose, I think one of the tremendous challenges of our moment is the question of how do we confront the reality of what it is to live in 2020, confronting the things uh, in us, in our society, the injustice around us, caring for those who need it with a posture of grace and peace. That's a creative challenge that we face every day and there's no simple answer for it. And, as we go out into the world around us, as you're confronted by your world this week, I challenge you to be asking this question. What does it look like for me to get done the things I'm called to get done, to be who I'm called to be, to engage with the tensions and the conflicts and the injustices that I'm called upon to reckon with, and to do it in a way that receives and extends to others the grace and peace of Jesus Christ to those that we encounter. That's what Paul is modeling from the very start of his letter to the Romans. And now as we close it out uh, today, I want to close together by reciting together a prayer, um, one of the great prayers in the history of the church. It's the peace prayer of St. Francis. Take a moment, just pause the video, pull it up on your phone. Uh, search for it on Google, the Peace Prayer of St. Francis. You can pause the video if you need a moment to find it. And I'd like us to recite it together as we implore the Lord to help us to approach our lives this week in a posture of grace and peace. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. 
where there's sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that we may not seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it's in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we're pardoned, and it's in dying that we're born to eternal life. Mosaic, I love you so much. I believe in you. I believe you're going to be called into bringing goodness into the world this week. I can't wait until we can hear each other's stories when we're all back together again. But until then, grace and peace to you. I love you.